Welcome to Breakthrough Brands. You are listening to The Conscious Business Show, bringing purpose, profit, and prosperity into your life and business with your host, Joe Dalton. Dave, we're live. Welcome to The Joe Dalton Show. How are you? Good, and thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. So I'm delighted to be part of your show. Well, you know, I was looking through your profile and my... As I was reading it, my jaw was hitting the ground. <laughs> no, you're still awake after reading it. <laughs> still on it. Look, tell the audience who you are. Dave Thomas, um, born and reared in Dublin, uh, now living in Wicklow. I started out um, basically in radio uh, when I was about 21 years of age, I think it was. Uh, I spoofed my way into a pirate radio station. And then, uh, yeah, I've worked over the years through radio. Uh, going on to national uh, radio, RT Radio 1, and then News Talk. I've written features for newspapers and magazines. And I set up an arts centre for people with disabilities. Uh, it was the first ever national arts and disability centre in Ireland. Oh, and I also then I was a foster carer for several years with my partner. We were the first same-sex couple to go through the fostering system as a couple uh, in Ireland. And then in 2015, I decided to kind of come back to the work that I was doing because when I was fostering, we couldn't do, I couldn't work. I was a stay-at-home parent, uh, take care of the kids. And so I thought at the time I could do a bit of radio, a bit of writing, whatever. Uh, that turned out to be a big uh, mistake. I, I misjudged how much time it would take to take care of the kids. And then in yeah 2015, I decided to come back to, to work, basically. And I decided to focus my career in film and TV, mostly film. Uh, and then I've been writing screenplays. I've made two short films, uh, a documentary and a drama. And I'm working on a whole bunch of projects at the moment. And uh, Award-winning as well. Award-winning. Thank you, well. glad you mentioned it. <laughs> I've been lucky, very, very fortunate. You know, I... But there it is, Dave. You, you know, you, you, you have it. You know, you talk about minding kids and at home and look what's going on in the world at the moment. You know, we're all in it together. Yeah. Um, but we are all in different boats. Some people are in ra- on rafts and some people are on liners. Yeah. You know, and with myself and my wife, like we have small children, you know, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And trying to do your day-to-day stuff at the moment is far apart than if someone has children who are 14, 15 or in their 20s. It's, it's a total different day. So... Yeah, if you're a stay-at-home parent and you're trying to do work, you know, your partner was, was I, I guess, was out working and you yeah. were then the stay-at-home partner. It's patience. I call it Zen to zero. Um, we have this time that we're all very Zen and we're, you know, positive and, you know, an outlook on life and everything is wonderful. And then when your kids will do something and it'll drop you back to zero out of frustration <laughs> with what you're trying to do. Yeah. do you, would you agree with that yourself? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it would be like now. I imagine if I was fostering the kids today during the situation we're in at the moment, the whole COVID-19, and especially during the lockdown, it would have been more intense. It was very intense and very stressful as it was, but I think it would be far more intense and stressful. And I have a lot of empathy and a lot of sympathy for parents who are taking care of younger kids right now. I think it's an amazing thing. Uh, with the fostering I finished in 2014, there, but it's going to 2015. That it was demanding, you know, that was extremely demanding. It was 24 7. I mean, I never thought it would be, 
Well, we were taking kids that regular HSE foster carers wouldn't take. Uh, so we, it was private agency. We signed to a private agency. And the private agency would take these kids that were considered to be um, on the extreme end of behavior issues. And yeah. they're not bad kids. You know, and people always say, oh, there must be really bad kids. But they're not. They're kids in bad situations. There were kids who had a raw deal in life that weren't as fortunate as I, I was or my partner was or, or hopefully you, you know, coming into this world um, and having a fairly stable, uh, nor- whatever normal is, a <laughs> family. Um, and, and those kids never experienced that. And um, yeah, it was pretty it's, tough. It's, it's interesting you say that because I'm doing an interview with a doctor in India. It'll be an interview that goes out after after hours. And she wants to speak about the silent voice of children that are being abused in the pandemic. She says people need to know this. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a strange world that we're living in at the moment. Even in, even in touching off that, I don't know if you've seen, um, talking about the movies and directors, uh, John Paul Rice, he was the producer of like the Hunger Games. And he, he did a 33-minute video yesterday or over the weekend calling out Hollywood on all the, the darkness that goes on in the music industry and the film industry in, in it. And it, it'll be interesting to see who takes that up or who who follows that through to pursue, to get action, and who doesn't? Like, it's really weird, the, the world we're living in at the moment. And I think that dark, there's a lot of darkness, but I think the light will shine through. And I think the light is you, me, other people out there that have a belief of social care and want to help people. And I commend you taking on these children um, because it's, 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 you know, it's, it's tough mind in your own, you know. It's harder mind than others. The funny thing about fostering, you know, compared to say adoption, right? There's, you know, with fostering at the end of the day, these are other people's kids. They're never your kids. They're never your child. So you're always conscious of that, that you're caring for and responsible for someone else's child. And the, the parent of that child is just unable to care for the, the, their own child for various reasons, mental health issues, addiction issues, and, and various other things. So it's kind of a strange situation. You're kind of in a limbo. They're your kids, but they're not your kids. So you, you try and make them uh, as much as you can as part of your family. Yeah. It's, uh... and, and give them some kind of normality and some kind of like, uh, even the everyday mundane, boring things in life. You know, um, with some of the kids, I remember um, they didn't understand about how their clothes would be clean or folded up for them and how that would happen, you know. So <laughs> the simple thing was, okay, what to show you. You pick up your dirty clothes off the floor. There's a thing, that white box over there is called a washing machine. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and showed them the process of how that actually happens. Um, the same with cooking, with food. Some kids had um, issues with eating, you know, and sometimes it was a, not quite an eating disorder, but it was a control issue. They felt they had no control of their life. Uh, and they didn't, you know, every social workers and everybody else is controlling their life. So their only control that they have is food. They can stop eating yeah. it, you know, yeah. or, or be difficult. So the way around that, well, the way we approached it was, we said, okay, well, you're going to help us. We're going to make dinner together. So they did. So they, they were more inclined to eat their food because they peeled, that pota- yeah. Yeah, they peeled that potato and they, they chopped that carrot and that kind of thing. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because like with kids today, they, they don't know how to be bored. Yeah. You know, when, when we were growing up, you know, TV, 
didn't come on till six o'clock. You know, there was the Angelus at six. Yeah. Then there was, um, you know, the national anthem was at half eleven. And you know, when the national anthem played, it was That's over. It. It's Even over, the yeah. nightclubs, yeah. you know, they held you <laughs> stuff everywhere. Yeah. that. And during the day, there was there wasn't, you know, there was nothing. And we learned to be bored. Yeah. So, and I'm laughing about what's going on at the moment with the pandemic and with the lockdown. Our age are okay because we yeah. grew up being bored. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We found a way to entertain ourselves or pass the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, we we do things. I never get bored now. I mean, I no. just don't know how to get bored. I I'm always doing stuff, you know. And even during the lockdown, it was probably one of my busiest times. I wrote. I was because I, I write. Um, writing for me is not just like a, a thing I do for a living. I I love writing. I thoroughly enjoy writing. If I wasn't doing it as a career. I would just be writing as a hobby, you know, absolutely yeah. love it. So I was very productive during the lockdown. And people were phoning me, friends were saying, you know, oh my God, I'm bored. I'm, I'm fed up watching Netflix for eight hours and I've done this. And, you know, I'm like, I haven't had time to look at Netflix. Yeah, it's mad because just last night I realized I don't watch TV. But we made a conscious decision probably about 10 years ago to get stop reading the newspapers uh, stop watching mainstream TV. And it was a time that the recession was kicking in and it was just, you know, negative TV pump, pumping in. And I call it fear feeders. So you know, they feed the fear and everyone then gets anxious and overwhelmed. And I just, like, I used to walk around, like, with news talk in my ear, listening to what was going on at two o'clock in the morning to see who won the local elections. You know, I was I was in on this and... I just woke up one day and went, I'm getting out of this. So I got rid of no papers, got stopped watching TV. And my life improved, believe it or not, because I wasn't feeding any of this anymore. But now I realized the other day, because I was kind of just thinking about our interview today and being with the the work that you're in. I switch on Netflix on a Thursday and and a Friday and maybe a Saturday for maybe a couple of hours. That's it. I don't watch it the rest of the week. I'm in the garden or I'm pottering around the house or, you know, I built a decking or, and it's a liberation to know that I don't need, as my father used to say, you are all focused on that God in the corner. (laughs) That God in the corner is taking over you. And we were all slouching on it, you know. But yeah, it's interesting how our lives change. I think you're right about the fear factor thing with news in particular. Um, I do watch news. I have a routine, but I, every morning, you know, my, my cereal and my cup of coffee. Uh, the, the coffee is the most essential thing in my life mm-hmm. during the day. And then I would watch um, the news and I watch a bit of the RTE news. I watch a bit of CNN. I watch a bit of the Europe, Euro news. And I, I get a fair, broad picture of what's going on in the world. But for me, as somebody who wrote for newspapers and that, I, I'm very disillusioned with the with the word of journalism, you know, and I used to call myself a journalist for like the best part of 30 years. And I find that a lot of it is so much biased and I'm, I'm disappointed with the agenda that a lot of news media have. Uh, and they have an agenda and they're pushing one particular angle and, I, and yeah. I, it gets under my skin and I don't like it. And the fear factor is, is one of the things that they love doing is to create fear, but then you're hooked. You have to keep watching. To find out what's happening, what's you know, is it going to end? Is will it be a light at the end of the tunnel? It's uh, a low I, vibration I, fear. Yeah, it is you know, actually. Yeah. yeah, you know, you you talk about different. We know in quantum physics, everything is from energy. 
and they can measure, you know, everything comes through through vibration. And fear is a low vibration. And if you can get up to a truth vibration, all that stuff just falls apart. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. But you're right about the media. Like I, I remember saying to someone, questioning someone, I said, you know, people are questioning 5G. I don't know enough about it to believe it's good or bad. I'm, so I'm not, I'm not getting into any of that. But I was saying to someone, says, I don't see, I see so many people talking about it. And I've seen that some counselors like in Wicklow, I believe, they, you know, in 2018, 19, they put a hold on it until they wanted to do a bigger research on this. But I didn't see anyone reporting it in any of the, in the papers or on TV. And someone said to me, that's because the biggest sponsors that are coming in, the, the communication companies are paying advertising. And if someone is paying advertising, you're not going to question what they're doing. Yeah. And that, that was something I, I was disillusioned with when I used to do radio work for 40 Radio 1. Mm-hmm. And um, my experience in there was um, be careful what you put out on air because you don't want to upset certain people. And one of the things was the government in particular with Fianna Fáil. Uh, they didn't want to upset Fianna Fáil. So I remember doing a documentary um, called uh, Mayor of the Mansion that went in on Radio 1. And um, it was interviewing different politicians and someone who became a mayor or, or Lord Mayor um, of a city or mayor of a town. And what it was like behind the scenes, it was just an interesting kind of a, a window into that kind of life and into that kind of world. And there was a few funny stories that involved, um, uh, I won't mention names, but a, ve- a well-known uh, female Fianna Fáil politician told me a very interesting story. And it involved her at an event in City Hall in Dublin, tripping up and falling over and almost landing in the arms of Bertie Ahern, who was Taoiseach. And I had to cut it out. I was told to cut it out. I had no choice, you know, because he, uh, he, don't upset the Taoiseach, don't upset the government, because they might object, they may not find it funny, you know. Yeah. And, I, and so I was disillusioned and disappointed over the years of how different radio things I was doing or even writing for different newspapers and magazines had to be censored. Only, it was, yeah, been censored. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. to be bluntly, yeah, it was been censored. You know, he who pays the pipe across the tune. And that, and if I could work in an environment where, you know, my hands are tied, uh, I just, I don't support any particular party. I have no particular agenda. No. Oh. I have always kept that, my personal views on that very, very private. Um, so that uh, if I was interviewing somebody from any political background, any political party, no one could ever tell if I liked or didn't like the person everybody was treated as equal you know and difficult but sometimes we're told you have to give a soft interview you know to this person because they're in government or they're not in government or whatever in my teens i was Fianna Fáil down in Kalini in the common down there and i remember meeting uh, leo when he was Taoiseach and saying to him there a couple of years ago so you've changed my view on Fianna Gael I, I don't have any political alliance to anybody. I have learned to believe that everybody is right because it's how they perceive the world to be. And it's only when they are shoving what they feel is right down my neck and making me believe what they have. that That is the issue on it. But you said there earlier on about CNN I don't think there's a political, I don't think there's a news company in America. I think like even you, you jump on Twitter and you ask a question on Twitter and you ask someone in America and the fight goes 
red states, blue states. It's amazing that if you throw something in, it's like you're throwing this little banger and ask a question. And they all just attack red state, blue, you know, red state, blue state. And then you look at CNN and you look at Fox News. There's no political. Then they're just, um, I don't know, what are they? Are they comedy channels? Or are they? Yeah. <laughs> I, that's a good point. They probably are, in a way. I always see them as kind of, they're the PR. They're the PR um, spokespeople for that's, the Yeah, they're the PR. Yeah. The PR. And, that's, and their job is to uh, influence the, the, the public or brainwash the public on the particular agenda for the people that they've, they've sided with. You know, yeah. So Fox News is, is completely, you know, Trump land. Uh, so whatever he says is, is the gospel truth. And then you have CNN, who's completely Democrats and, you know, pro-Joe Biden, now they will be. And um, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no balance. There's no, there's no balance. There's no, there's no news. There's no news. There's no news. It's, it's look, at, look at a speech. And you, if you, I find that if I want to get my own view, I look at CNN, what they have to say. I look at Fox and see what they have to say. And then I look at it myself and yeah. come up with my own, my own interpretation of it. Because yeah. if you look at one or the other, it's, it's, it's mad. But they have the, it's the effect of over the whole world as well. Uh, true. I mean, we have it here, Rob's going to say in America, uh, th- that kind of thing of just using common sense. You know, just to look at what's been fed to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a map and try to find it somewhere. <laughs> but they haven't got it. It's like, as you rightly said, you're, you're blue or you're, or you're red state and you're, that's your view, you know. And but in this country, we have a thing where, you know, people say, well, I've, I'm Fianna Fáil because my father was Fianna Fáil and my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Go, well, that doesn't make me as right. Now, what's that? But the, it's their policies. Do you believe in the policies? You know, but that's it. I was Fianna Fáil because my father was Fianna Fáil. You know, it, it, there was an influence there. But it's and it is about the policies. And the country is two. It's two organisations here. There's a third one which is coming in, which is Sinn Féin. Um, there's then there's all the independents. I think that the political system here is going to change within within the next, you know, we can see a change in already, but I think it's the, the changing of the guard, as people say. But I think it's going to change in the next five years. Yeah. And if it changes for the good or for the bad, whatever happens out of it, it will be good. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think you're right. I think there, there is going to be a change, dramatic change. I'll just tell you a funny story. I yeah. just think I just had a, a little memory trigger that went off there. We're talking about Fianna Fáil. This is something that I think is, I think is funny anyway, and I hope everybody else finds it funny. If not, we'll cut it out. If, yeah, if not, yeah, definitely cut it out. Or put in a canned laughter, you know, at the end of it, and applause. You know? Applause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I was, it was the 1990s, mid-1990s it would have been, and I had set up the art centre called the Apex Centre. It was an arts, arts and disability organisation. And I got to know Sheila de Valera, who was Fianna Fáil, and Sheila went on to become Minister for Arts. And I also happened to know Michael D. Higgins, who also was Minister for Arts. And I happened to know a number of politicians through the Greens, John Gormley and so on. So anyway, the elections, whatever year it was in the mid-1990s, uh, Sheila de Valera asked, would myself and the organisation that I had, would we write a policy on arts and disability for their manifesto? And uh, I said, OK. So it's myself and my colleagues. So we wrote this 
arts and disability and equality uh, issues in the manifesto for Fianna Fáil. Now, Fianna Gael came to us and said, listen, guys, would you happen to, you know, could you write a policy on arts and disability and equality for our manifesto? So we said, sure. <laughs> so we wrote the same thing, just changed the wording around a little bit. And that was for Fianna Gael. So Labour then came to us and said, no would you do this? and the Greens. So each of the manifestos for that election had a section on arts and disability and equality in Ireland. And uh, it was all the same. We had just, the same. We wrote the same thing and we just changed the wording here and there. And they were all happy with what they got. Did anybody pick that up to see that it was the same? No, no, never. They, I've never heard never. a thing since. But even media or someone going, hang on, they've, they've, they're right, who's copying who? You know that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was the same thing. It was the basically, I can't remember how many pages it was. It was quite a detailed uh, policy thing that we wrote. But it was the it was a copy and paste job for all yeah, of them. Just, yeah. We just rejigged yeah. around the wording here and there. What made you, Dave? Like, where did your life sort of meander to a, a place where, you know, an art center for disabilities? You know, taking on foster children. There must be a, a, a there's obviously a, a caring part of you, and then getting into the documentaries and everything as well. How did that evolve? How where where was the where was the spark? So it's been you know there's a number of sparks, a number of things that triggered the direction that my life has changed, and only fairly recently I realised that every six or seven years or thereabouts I change career. Well, I stay in the same kind of area of arts and artsy world, as film or radio or writing or whatever it is, but it seems I changed direction. I didn't know this now; it wasn't a plan. Every seven years or thereabouts, I seem to change. Right. Um, so what would have been the, the initial spark would have been when I was two and a half years of age, I was a, I got sick as a child. I was a very kind of hyperactive child and I got sick and my mother couldn't get me to take medicine. She tried and I would push her away with the bottles of medicine and smash things. And, and it wasn't I was just coughing and not well temperature and stuff. So she brought me to a GP and the GP said, oh, look, I'll give him an injection, a penicillin injection and he'd be fine. So he put me over his knee and then gave me an injection in the backside and I passed out completely. He told my mother I was acting up and she had to literally carry me home. It was a good long walk for her to uh, to walk home, carrying this two and a half year old uh, plump baby, <laughs> heavy baby. And, um, and she described it to me as my eyes were rolling around in my head and she was very worried. This is going back now. This is 1968. And, um, and then uh, my dad came home from work he discovered by accident the bed was wet. I wet the bed, which was unusual. So they stripped me off my pajamas and found that my legs were, were cold and, and blue and purple and freezing. And the blood had stopped circulating. So I, they called the GP. He came to the house. And I won't go into a very long story here, but the GP dilly-dallied for, for hours and hours. Um, I was rushed to hospital and I wasn't expected to live. Uh, no one knew what was going on, except that I was dying, basically. So... Anyway, here's a spoiler. I actually lived, right? <laughs> so the next day uh, when I survived, um, my parents hadn't seen me for hours. They took, my, took me away from my parents. There's no record or documentation of what happened uh, behind closed doors of what treatment I got or whatever. But um, I was in hospital. Then after about six months, I was told I could leave. Uh, my parents discovered then when they picked me up out of the bed, I couldn't walk. I was paralyzed. So from the, the uh, my legs just totally gone. So they, the, the hospital claimed they didn't know that I was paralyzed uh, because I had been in the bed for six months. 
there was a lot of physiotherapy and all kinds of treatments in the in the late sixties into the early seventies, and I uh, the the outcome was that the muscles from the knees down and both legs had died completely, and so the idea was to develop the muscles from the knees up, then the thighs and so on, and learn how to walk again. So I remember vividly getting all kinds of treatments and physiotherapy and learning to walk all, all over again from the age of about three uh, to four years of age, uh, and a little bit of memories, you know, kind of little snapshots of of walking up and down between parallel bars and all kinds of treatments. Um, and the result of that was I ended up then as a child going to a school for disabled kids, which is well known uh, in Dublin, if not around the world, and not around Ireland, I mean, called the CRC, the Central Remedial Clinic in Clontarf in Dublin. And so I ended up uh, going there as my primary school. So the CRC was a charity organization, but it was a school and a rehabilitation center. Uh, founded by Lady Valerie Goulding. So I think that changed my whole direction of my life, you know, having now having a disability. And I was in a school with kids with disabilities until I was um, 12 years of age, up to sixth class. And I think my I think about charity and causes and fundraising and doing something for um, the underdog came from those, those experiences yeah. of, of being in a school, being a child in the CRC. Who were always fundraising and doing walks and doing all kinds of collections and stuff like that, which I used to help with. Uh, so I think it came from from that. And then what also then changed the direction of my life was uh, I got the opportunity to go to college in America, uh, in Pittsburgh, or Pennsylvania. And while I was there in college, part of the training they introduced me to people in the media and film and TV. And I was told uh, a meeting had been set up one morning to meet a guy called Don Brockett. Now, Don Brockett would not be known here in Ireland. In America, he'd be very well known. Uh, there, was a, there was a movie out only recently with Tom Hanks called, um, Oh, Will You Be My Neighbor? Uh, which was about a guy called Mr. Rogers. Now, Mr. Rogers was on TV for something like 50 years, kids' programs. He was kind of like our Wonderly Wagon or Bosco yeah. or something along that line. So every kid, every people grew up with, with Mr. Rogers. And on the show, Mr. Rogers, Don Brockett played chef. Okay. Don was a producer, director, writer, actor. He had a small part in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, he was a zombie in the first ever zombie movie, uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, George A. Romero. Um, he played the lead zombie in that. He, made it, he was well-known in America. And I was told to meet this guy uh, in the film industry. And I met him uh, one morning. And I was in this area waiting for him on a ship. It was a steam uh, clipper ship, beautiful thing. And we were filming some show there. I was sitting beside a table eating donuts uh, and coffee because I was hungover. I have to admit, I was a student that was up late every night. Yeah. Uh, drinking and stuff. And I was hungover the next morning. And I was eating all these donuts that were on the table. And I had sugar and jam all over my face. I must have looked in an awful state. <laughs> it was, I had dark sunglasses. I think Bono. I had dark Shades on, covering my eyes. And uh, I was only in a bed about two hours at this stage. Rock and, and roll lifestyle. It was, yeah, God, I paid for that, I can tell you. I wasn't able for it. So I'm there anyway, stuffing my face with donuts and things. And this, I saw this guy coming over towards me, and he, I walked with a limb. And this guy was walking worse than me, really bad, like limp, you know, limping around. And yeah. I thought, oh, he must be one of the, the crew coming to get me, to bring me to meet Don Brockett. And it turned out it was Don Brockett. I didn't know he had a disability. I didn't know 
about his legs or anything about him. Uh, and I didn't even know how famous he was at the time in America. And I met Don Brock and we had a great meeting for about an hour there, about maybe an hour and a half. And something happened during that meeting. In my head, I kept thinking about Don Brockett would not be successful in Ireland uh, if he had grown up here and, and tried to get the jobs that he, he wouldn't be the successful actor, producer, director, and writer. He wouldn't have got the opportunities here. And that annoyed me and stuck in my head. I came home after my college was finished. And the following year, I decided I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to set up an organization of some, some kind that links up the arts world and disability and removes all the different barriers that are there between the two. Yeah. And some of the barriers were financial, some are physical, um, you know, some are, are people's perception. So the idea was to try and come up with services uh, and projects that remove those barriers and link the two together. And that's what then took over my life. And I set up this organization. I borrowed 100 quid off my dad. I went to the Bank of Ireland and had a chat with a, uh, a guy in the Bank of Ireland for about know, 20 minutes or half hour or something like that. And I thought I bored him. I really thought I, the guy was bored. Never smiled, didn't react to anything I said. And I was trying to get money out of the Bank of Ireland. And he just said, okay, stop talking. Stop. Sit, sit there. Don't move. And he walked off. And I thought, oh, crap, this has really gone really bad, you know. He's got to get security. Where, where's the exit? <laughs> yeah, I thought, he's got to get security, you know, to throw me out. He comes back with a check. Now, this was 1992. Yeah. And he has a check for £15,000 made payable to me personally. And he said, this should cover, do you think, rent for your, for a premises, for your art centre? And I said, yeah, at least two years, maybe rent, maybe more. And for this, you get all this kind of publicity, blah, 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 blah. And he said, there you go, make it happen. And I walked out of the Bank of Ireland with this check for 15 grand. Now, that was a lot of money. 15,000 was a lot of money. A lot of money then, yeah. And uh, and he trusted me to do it. So, and it took off. The arts, it took huge. We had um, uh, Jean Kennedy Smith, the American ambassador, JFK's sister. Uh, She heard about this uh, center that we had. And she came down for a visit, visit and Got to know Jean Kennedy Smith over the few years she was uh, ambassador. Mary Robinson was president of Ireland. She came down for our third birthday and she cut the cake and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Michael D. Higgins uh, officially opened the building and the, the whole thing took off. But that was Don Brockett. That, that meeting Don Brockett changed my mind. Changed. It got under my skin, like how he, successful he was in America. But there, there's a question then that's, that's after coming up. You know, we talk about Ireland and Ireland... You know, I always refer to Ireland as being the, the the playboy of the Western world. We're great at putting people on pedestals, and then we we take the legs off them. And in the world, it's three degrees of separation. But in Ireland, it's probably one one and a half degrees of separation. Why do you think Don wouldn't have been able to make it here compared to in America? Now, I've worked in in America, and I know the beauty of being Irish and other people when they go abroad, like I've worked in many countries, we reinvent ourselves and we can be anybody we want to be when we're abroad because we don't have that stigma of um, imposter syndrome. But why do you think he would have had a problem here? Believe it or not, it's, it's not that far back. You know, 1992, no. it's not that far back. The attitude was with, um, I'll say the establishment, and I'm talking about Department of Arts and Culture, uh, the Arts Council in particular, 
the attitude was that if you had a disability in Ireland at that time, you couldn't be a professional in the arts world uh, because of your disability. You were, you were a liability. That was the attitude. Like the exception would be Christy Brown, you know, um, Christopher Nolan. There was very few, you could say, were a disability that actually were successful or were known as artists. And that was the attitude. Oh, there was a number of things wrong. I mean, I, I could go on for hours, but, I, and, but basically, just give you an example of the kind of things that we did, which addressed the issues and the problems at that time. We had people coming to us that wanted to be writers, but the, any writing workshop or courses they attended moved at a, at a pace that they weren't able to uh, keep up with due to various problems. They, they may have a slight intellectual disability or they just needed a little extra time to absorb information um, and work on the projects, whatever, and they just couldn't fit in or keep up. That was just one thing. So we designed workshops around the individuals as opposed to individuals fitting into existing workshops. Yeah. So that never happened before in this country. That was, that was unique. And I, I still think it's fairly unique. Um, it is. And, and it's like with ourselves up in Dublin South FM, you know, the, there's, the disability is important to ourselves. And we try then, we have, you know, people who are disabled, it, you know, could be physical. And some people may have um, other, you know, um, confidence yeah. issues, yeah. confidence yeah. issues. Yeah. And it's bringing them in and either working with them within the station or getting them to do shows, because we're all in. We're we're all one, you know. When when we realise at the end of the day, it's not you know, you know, green, black, blue, you know, country, Dublin, Cork, Wexford. When when we realise we're all one, and when you have that approach, it it sort of opens up. And like what you're doing. And what we're hoping we're trying to do as well is, is probably just to educate people that we're all, we are just people. You are listening to The Conscious Business Show with Joe Dalton. And the thing, the, but the problem that I found is that the majority, whoever they are, right, the majority uh, dictate everything, right? So everything is built around the majority. So let's, for example, like you say, um, with the physical environment, for example, most people walk on two, two legs walking around. So our environment with steps and so on for years, that's always been catered around that, public transport and so on, but people who can move around fairly well on two feet. So anybody who doesn't outside of that are the minority, but we never cater for that because we always cater for the majority. Um, the same with people who are blind or visu- visually impaired. Uh, for years, you know, there was no Braille signs or anything. It was basically because the majority of people had sight. And that's, uh, and that's what we did. We, uh, we created this bubble around the majority. There's two pet hates of mine, and it drives me insane, is, you know, people parking in disabled spaces. Now, someone said to me, what do you want them to do, fall on the ground and crawl? (laughs) No, I just want them to display a disabled sign in their window. Yeah. Because, and and the other one is people parking on footpaths. And you sort of say, he who has sinned may cast the first stone. You know, I have done it in the past, but I'm now more mindful that I don't park on a footpath, you know, up on the footpath. And the reason being because someone might be trying to get past in a wheelchair onto a road, a dangerous road, children on their bicycles cycling down, can't get past. So they, you know, get on the road, hit by a car. There's stuff that we don't think about 
that if we just stopped, it could even, those small little things, which is a ripple effect, can make a big difference in someone else's life. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, I, my parents used to say to me, um, you know, Dave, you can't sort out all the problems of the world. You're burning yourself out, tr- trying to make everything right. Focus on one thing. The, what I did was with the organizations, I had a team of people, I had up to 30 staff. We were able to tackle many, many different things. But since that's all behind me now, and now I'm doing films, I'm doing it. That's, I'm still doing my, my work in that sense. The things that still annoy me by education and creating awareness, but I'm doing it through the medium of film now. This is the stage of your life now. Let's go into your last documentary um, and the one that, you know, I think I reached out to you. Was it last year or, you know, saying I wanted to chat to you? And it was at the time you won the awards and everything as well. Tell us why. How? Spill the beans. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I don't pick things that are commercially, you know, good. I pick stuff, I've always picked projects, whether it's radio or magazines, articles for magazines, and now for film, things that um, I, I'm passionate about. I have to feel it. I have to, um, it has to come from inside me. I have to really feel desire. it. Desire. Desire, yeah, yeah. And it has to mean something, you know. So when, the, when I decided to make the first uh, film, the documentary uh, called One Billion, I was very aware of the information that I in my head about this still in 20, you know, 2018, 2017, 18, 19, and today, there's still many things wrong, you know, regarding equality for people with disabilities. And even though I'd worked for years um, with the Arts Centre and trying to make positive changes, there are still things today that I was trying to sort out back in 1992, 3, 4, 95, 96, 97, 98. Uh, like public transport and so on, um, and just access, simple access to things. So when I, when I decided to make the first film, I wanted to do something that created awareness of the injustice and the barriers and difficulties there for people with disabilities in Ireland but around the, and around the world, but also show the ability of people with disabilities. So I wanted to do a contrast between those two things. So the way I did it was I interviewed um, several young people with disabilities who are amazing, regardless of their disability, they're still against the odds being successful and, and doing some great stuff. And then in between the interviews, I was, I'm cutting to kind of a black screen with white writing on it, which is showing the information, the yeah. actual uh, facts about the injustices, the difficulties um, for access to education, access to employment, all that kind of stuff from Ireland to, to around the world. So there's that kind of contrast between what you're reading and then you're seeing these people talking who are amazing. Wondering why are these people being subjected to this information which you're seeing on the black cards? And so I, and I shot the thing in black and white as well to give the contrast of black and white, you know, the dark and the light. And the dark bit is the dark card with the information. And it's very dark, some of the things you read on it. And the light is the people talking about how wonderful that their, their life is and how they're still doing things beyond that you would expect. And I find it inspirational, it's motivational, and I thought it was creating awareness of ability of people with disabilities. And that was the kind of essence of what I was trying to do with the, with the film. It's, it's interesting because I know of people who have disabilities and the courts have got involved and basically shackled these people unfairly because the court felt they knew best but in, in reality, when you know these people or what's going on, you know that the courts 
don't know best. Was that is that sort of a message as well? Going back to where we spoke about and everything is built around everyone with two legs. You know, if you have a disability or if you have something, you're shunned. Look, like myself, I'm dyslexic. Discovered I was dyslexic in in primary school and blocked probably most of my primary school. I don't remember the majority of my primary school. I remember going in in baby infants and playing with water and going, this is awesome. And then not remembering any of it after that, because obviously my mind blocks something out from it. Do you think that the way we are is that sometimes because we see people with disability, and I mean, we see as a nation, as a world, as a community, we think we know best when we don't. You know, that's exactly the case. Um, it's the same with kids in foster care um, are not involved in, in their decisions about their lives. And it was the same with disability, you know, with people deciding on what was best for individuals with disability without actually having people with disabilities involved uh, or understanding it. And it was the perception of what we think is the right by the majority um, of able-bodied people for those, what's best for those minority with disabilities. Uh, and I found that was the case going back even to the 1990s when I became more very political because I became more aware of what was going on in Ireland and around the world. Um, I mean, Ireland is, is pretty progressive. A lot of people don't even give the country credit for it. We've, we've, a lot of things wrong with it. But we're very progressive and now with disability issues and with LGBTQ issues. We're, we're ahead of the curve. We're, I heard about, I hate to say the curve in the current context of COVID-19. We're ahead of of things, you know, with, uh, uh, compared to other countries. We're, we're way ahead when it comes to the, the equality and rights issues and stuff like that. But you're right, yeah, I think that, was, that has been the case in Ireland. We, the majority of able-bodied, were able-bodied people making the laws and decisions for those they felt, and they felt were doing the right thing. I wouldn't say necessarily anything bad or malicious by it. It was pure, it was ignorance, ignorance because yeah. they didn't have the knowledge that it was needed. How did you win the awards? Uh, Pure luck. <laughs> no, no one else wanted them. <laughs> they just gave them away. <laughs> gave them away. Uh, I'm actually looking at some of them now. They're in front of me um, uh, behind my computer here. Um, I think with the screenplays... If you go onto LinkedIn, you'll see them all on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, yeah. 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 That's true. I'm sure that, yeah. Any opportunity, I'll show them Any all. opportunity. Uh, if anybody wants me to send them a photograph of the awards, I'll do that. I'll print it out and send it to but you. But it's know? a great achievement. You know, there's people out there who've been stuff for years. and It's the show. This is a good story. A great documentary gets into the hearts of the people and tells the truth. Yeah. Do you know what? I, was, I knew, like, it's a very short documentary. It's, yeah. about, it's 11 minutes long or thereabouts. I submitted the film into festivals around the world. And I thought... It'd be nice if it gets in to somewhere. And then I got into one festival, another, another, and so on. And I, I couldn't believe my luck. And I, I, it was connecting with people. Um, and I realized that while I was trying to tell a, an Irish story, but also there was a global aspect to it, that it was connecting with people in France, in Italy, in, uh, in Russia. I mean, of all places. In, it's, it's been screened about three times in Russia, at different festivals in, in Russia. Um, and in um, Australia... Um, it hasn't been screened in Poland, interestingly enough. And I'd like it to be screened in Poland because it needs to be. But I, I, I think it's just connecting with people. But if you look at um, the great documentary that I've seen with disability, was it uh, Mark Pollock? Yeah. Um, he went to see the screening of it in, I think it would have been Bray. 
can't remember, it was a couple of years ago, it was his life. So and you know the story with Mark, if, if anyone doesn't know, he, you know, blind and then fell out the window and then was paralysed. And, and it shows you the resilience that he has, that you kind of, and it's just, that's the sort of a story, you think you're having a bad day, have a look what this guy has and look at the strength that it had given him in life on it. Yeah. Do you feel stories like that has it is in the one million to to kind of help people go? You think you're having a good day? Look at these guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's an eye opener into a world that you wouldn't uh, otherwise be be aware of. And I think that's what the idea of the, of the film is to kind of open the door and say, look of this, look at this person's life. You know, and they might, might be the same age as you. They might even be from the same town or same city as you. What I find incredible was that, say, for example, people in Russia. Uh, connecting with some of the stories, say, with somebody with Down syndrome in Ireland, you know, but they're able to see a person's life and see what they were doing with their life, which is really in a positive and, uh, and powerful way. But I think you mentioned something there which kind of sparked a thing in my head about resilience, you know, and I think a lot of people with disabilities have that resilience and it comes part of the package because um, you have a choice. You can stay at home and do nothing and say, poor me. And I can't get up those steps, I'm in a wheelchair. Or I can't go to an ATM because I can't see the buttons. Or, I, you know, whatever it is, poor me. Or you can get up off your backside or get on your wheels and push and go for it. You know, and I think a lot of people with disabilities, maybe not everyone, but definitely a lot of people with disabilities have that resilience in them because it's there, because the alternative is not nice. And we don't want the alternative. Tell us what the new project is, what your... The aim, the goals, tell us all about it. After a One Billion, I made a, a drama called Aretha, which is a, a, a lovely little drama about a young girl with Down syndrome starting out in life, uh, played by a, a girl called Orla Casey, who I met in 2016. And this is a drama that I filmed in Offaly uh, that was fund, funded through the Film Offaly Bursary Award that my screenplay had won. I got 10, 10 grand from the, as, as the prize and shot the movie down in, a, in a Offaly uh, with Connor Mullen, who's in um, Red Rock and a whole bunch of other things. Denise McCormick's in it from Love, Hate and lots of other things. Hilda Faye, well-known from Fair City and, um, uh, and Daniel Codd. Um, we, we shot the movie and it was a, a 10-minute film. It has done immensely well in film festivals as well around the world. Um, we have a distributor who just sold it on to a company in San Francisco called Canopy. And they then distribute the film to libraries around the world where people can go and watch the movie for free. Um, so a documentary and a drama under my belt. Then I had this other short called The Journey. And it's about an aging train station master who um, his whole life is this train station. And then he discovers he's terminally ill. Um, and he's kind of bitter that his wife was taken before her time and he's on his own. And now he's got this illness. And he's going to lose everything. His, his wife is gone. The train station will be gone because he's losing his life. And he refuses to let go. And this messenger appears to tell him there's, there's a journey. And there's a journey that um, life is not just it. The journey doesn't end with the last yeah. breath. There is another journey beyond this. But he doesn't listen to this messenger, this woman who keeps appearing out of nowhere on this train station and telling him. Now, we don't know who this woman is. You can say she's an angel. Uh, whatever you want to say, right? Or just a local. It's up to you to decide who you think uh, this is. But it's definitely implied that she's something supernatural type of thing. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so it's him learning about uh, accepting the message that, you know, there was a time to say, time to let go. And um, that's what this film's about. So I'm trying to raise the funds for that. I've about a third of the funding already raised um, and I need two thirds to make the film. Uh, And the screenplay has already won a ton of awards and festivals around around the world. And then after that, if I get to make that, hopefully it was, well, the plan was to make it this summer, believe it or not. Uh, so a little virus thing uh, just put a stop to that one. <laughs> you, may, you, you may have heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't well. know. But it, um, so the next, after that, I've I've written two feature screenplays, uh, two feature films. One, um, one's a very Irish-themed film, a family kids film. And the second one is a thriller, American-based kind of a thriller. I've written also uh, a TV series, uh, six part, six one hours part. It's a drama comedy. And that's been read at the moment by a production company. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm dry- so I was very productive during the lockdown. I've written so much stuff. But, but here it is, you know, you're in your 50s now. And what I'm getting at is, do you only really feel now you have discovered your purpose? Mm-hmm. All the rest was training ground and educational till you got to this point now that, I now discover what my purpose is. I would say yes to a point, right? And the thing is, I'm still learning. Yeah, yeah. We, and we... I'm still making mistakes. I'm still yeah. making blunders every day. Uh, everything's a learning curve. Um, I went on the, the set of Aretha uh, in, on the 4th of February, 2019. It was the first day of shooting. It was my first time to direct a drama. And I went into onto a set with professional actors camera crew everybody had tons of years of experience i had nothing to show for my training basically that's it but i never professionally had made a film i directed a, a drama uh, i had one billion documentary made but that was different a uh, different style of directing and so on and um and i thought geez you know I, I i really don't know anything you know and what i do like to do is surround myself with people that know far more than me and then try and reach their level you know, it's always a challenge to try and bring myself up to their standard. Well, that's success, um, isn't it? That's, yeah. You know, you, you get those people in and then you just, you learn from them. I think we all do that in a way. Well, we'd like to like to think we do. Yeah, you, you build on that, you know, and you learn from that. But I, I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, a lot of what I've done is training. I mean, my radio and my writing and stuff, I'm a storyteller. I've, I've been a journalist, broadcaster, all these different things over the years. Uh, but at the end of the day, my, my, my description of me would be a storyteller. No matter what I've done, I've always been trying to tell a story through different mediums. So it was radio, it was print media, through the arts world and so on. And I'm still doing it, you know, just telling stories. Okay. That I think okay. I'm going to throw something out here now. We're coming to the end of the show. What have you learned about yourself and the world? In the last few years, I've learned uh, a skill called patience. Patience with other people. But more so patience with myself. Um, I'm a hard worker. I work really, really, I can work long hours. I work seven days a week. I do work seven days a week at the moment. But what I learned was I always, previously, I was very demanding on other people to try and reach, I felt, my level of perfection that I was trying to reach. You know the thing about being a perfectionist, you never reach it. You strive to reach perfection, but you never get there. It's just so frustrating, you know, and you don't want want to be a perfectionist, but that's in you, you know. Um, And I've learned to be much more patient. I'm much more accepting of, you know, of failure. Uh, even a failure is a learning, is a learning moment. Um, it's not a bad thing, you know, and I've, I've learned years ago, you 
there's a lot of rejection in this business. As you know, with radio or print, whatever it is, there's a lot of rejection with projects. Um, and you can take it personal or you just take it on the chin and learn from it, you know? And that's one thing I've learned is that patience and to look at everything as a learning curve. I would agree. I would change it slightly if it was it myself. Is There's no such thing as failure. Because mm-hmm. it true. is, you, you know, you, you, you hit a wall. It's not a failure. You, you're going to go, okay, I've learned it. Now I know I need to walk around it. You know? Actually, let me add something to that. I totally agree with you. I'm going to correct myself when I said a minute ago. Failure is not trying. Failure is having uh, an idea or having uh, a passion and not doing anything about it by, by sitting still or even having an opinion or wanting to make a change in the world or in yourself. And I think failure is, by, is not acting on it by ignoring it and just sitting there and doing nothing. Yes, we could fail in life when we realize we don't remember who we are and becoming the true person that we're meant to be. Yeah. Sitting down, watching TV 24-7, you know, and not doing anything. That's going to cause its own issues. Yeah. I, I find that, and I love technology, but I find that today, now I'm going to sound like an old man, right? I find that a lot of people are living their life through the keyboard you know, on, on a screen. You know, they're living their life through um, Facebook and through other social media. And, and even if they go outside and they go, say, go to the zoo or go to the park, and they're looking through a screen at what's in front of them, whether it's a sunset, you know, or a beautiful moment or whatever it is, waves in the sea, and they're looking at it through a screen. And I just think, you know. But I think COVID helped a lot of people to slow down mm-hmm. and stop. And like a client of mine said he was out and he noticed the plants, you know, people were noticing the birds, people were slowing down and looking at everything around them. It's like I was in the garden the other day and a plane, I could hear the noise of a plane. My little daughter said, what's that noise, daddy? And I was, and I was disturbed and upset that I could hear a plane. Yeah. Isn't it? That's, and I kind of went, oh my God, like, we are so used to these just noise all the time. I got upset that I could hear a plane. It's really yeah. weird. You know? Yeah, but, but that's how life has changed, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we had no control over it and we have to adapt to this new. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm starting to get a bit sick of the, the phrase new normal, but I don't know what else to call it. I, yeah, I'm not buying into the new normal. Yeah. I think it's just, it's just normal. It's, yeah. you know, it's, we're, as humans, we're very resilient. Yeah. Um, I think what's happening as well is, and I, I'm saying this a lot, I think there's more people waking it up, political, yeah. social, economical. And, you know, the more good will come out of this than, than bad. Honestly. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Dave, where can people reach you or if, they're, if they want to find out about the movies or if, you know, there's, a, there's someone listening to this in America and wants to sponsor um, one of your, your next projects, where can they reach out to you? Okay, um, there's two ways. One is if I win the lotto this week, I'll be in Tahiti um, on my own tropical island, so you you won't find me. Uh, If I don't win the lotto, what you can do is you go to, um, the best thing is go to my website, and I'm easily contactable through the website. It's it's better than giving phone numbers or emails and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's davethomasfilms.net, davethomasfilms.net, and from there you find me through LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm not on TikTok, though. 
I think I'm way too old past that. Yeah, <laughs> I, think that's, TikTok, I, think, yeah. I think that's going to be caught as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. 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 The days I remember, I think, with TikTok. But um, yeah, so DaveThomasFilms.net, that's where I'm easily contactable. You can see trailers of my films on that. You can see potential projects I'm working on um, and the, the, the awards and the different things I've done. It's all on the website. Um, and it's the best place to go, really, I think, to, to reach out to me. Dave, it's a pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks for thank, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks thank you. On. And I hope you asked me again. Because I've still we, more to say. So yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a life journey. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And remember, here at Dublin South of M, we're interviewing plenty of people around the world, conscious leaders, and that's why we have the Conscious Business Podcast, which is part of the Conscious Business Academy, offering purpose, profit, and prosperity in your life through soulful selling, mindful marketing, conscious leadership and creative culture. You want to reach out to me? It's joedalton.ie. You have an awesome week and take care and look after yourself. <laughs>